Hello, I'm Abram Vanningen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today, we're very excited to have Gerald Early joining us to discuss the great Harlem Renaissance poet, County Cullen. Gerald Early is the Merle Kling Professor of Modern Letters in the African-American Studies Department at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a cultural critic who's written on many different topics, including literature, music, and sports. You may have seen him on several Ken Burns specials. He's won the National Book Critics Circle Award for criticism, along with a whole host of other honors. But most importantly for today, he is the person who edited and introduced the main collection of County Cullen's poems called My Soul's High Song. Welcome to the show, Gerald. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to look at uh, the first poem that's in that collection of poetry. It's titled, Yet Do I Marvel. But before we discuss who County Cullen was and why he was so important, would you mind reading that poem for us? Sure. Yet do I marvel. I doubt not God is good, well-meaning, kind. And did he stoop to quibble could tell why the little buried mole continues blind, why flesh that mirrors him must someday die. Make plain the reason torture Tantalus is baited by the fickled fruit, declare if merely brute caprice doom Sisyphus to struggle up a never-ending stair. Inscrutable his ways are, and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand what awful brain compels his awful hand. Yet do I marvel at this curious thing, to make a poet black and bid him sing. Thank you for that. Before we get into close reading this poem and seeing how it works, can you just tell us a little bit about who County Cullen was? Well, County Cullen was probably in the mid-1920s the most famous black poet in America and probably one of the most highly regarded black writers in America in 1925, which is when this poem was published. It was adopted by a black minister in Harlem, a black Methodist minister, Frederick Cullen. He was educated at mostly white schools. The Whit Clinton High School was a mostly white high school, mostly for academically talented kids. He seemed to have always been interested in poetry and started writing poetry when he was still a teenager. In fact, when he was still in high school and studied English literature at NYU, was very influenced by the Romantic poets and emerged from all of this, from his education and so forth, as really probably the most well-trained Black poet in history to that time. And so here was a, a marriage of the man and the moment. Here was this Black literary person interested in poetry coming out when he did in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance 1925, which was a movement to try to create important Black artists. So he was very promoted. One of the things I love about your introduction to this book of the collected work of County Cullen is that, of course, you focus so intensely on his life and work, but you provide such fantastic context, just cultural, historical, political context and you situate him so that we can better understand his significance. And so one thing that interested me in your introduction, you say that 
the book that really kicked off the phase of the new Negro movement known as the Harlem Renaissance was James Weldon Johnson's 1922 anthology, The Book of American Negro Poetry. Can you say more about the role of that anthology and its relation to the Harlem Renaissance? Sure. James Weldon Johnson was a major literary and political figure. He was very high placed in the NAACP. He was also a novelist and a poet himself. So he was very well established as a literary figure and could understand literary people. Johnson was very interested during the 20s in the Harlem Renaissance of wanting to create a canon. And basically, the Book of American Negro Poetry was creating a black canon. But what's more important than the actual poets he put in the book was the introduction he wrote to the book. Because in the introduction, he kind of laid out the creed for the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance was about, according to him, Black people creating great art. Because he said, no people have ever been discriminated against or discriminated against for long if they have created great art. And he said, okay, Black people have now created this great folk art. You know, Black people have folk tales and they have folk music because even at this time, like blues music, And even early jazz music was considered by many people kind of folk music. So, you know, Black people created this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's been very important in the United States, a very important fabric, a very important part of the fabric of American culture. But now what Black people need to do is to take this basic folk art and elevate it into high art. And what they need to do with poetry is to take kind of folk poetry that they're creating and dialect poetry and to elevate this into really high art. So that was his thinking. And Cullen personified that. I mean, Cullen was a guy who looked like he could do that. Someone who could take certain kind of Black themes and write technically precise poetry that would be well regarded in white critical circles. I'm so interested in how anthologies and how literary reputation have worked over the decades since the Harlem Renaissance. So quite often, most people think of the most famous Harlem Renaissance poet as Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. right? And of course, the first thing that I think of when I think of Langston Hughes are some of my favorite poems of his come from the Weary Blues. Mm -hmm. And that goes directly to your point about jazz, about the blues. But as you say, in the 1920s, the answer to that question would have been County Cullen. He would have been the most famous. And I wonder if you could say a bit about how Cullen and Hughes were responding to Johnson. Well, the two men were kind of rivals in a way. I mean, they were roughly the same age. They were young men. It was Cullen who constantly (laughs) kept saying, I'm a poet. I'm not a Negro poet. You know, I don't want to be considered a Negro poet. I'm a poet. This is what I do now. I, I granted that racial themes may be in my poetry and so forth. The fact there was a lot of racial themes in this poetry, but felt it was stigmatizing or, or, or kind of limiting label to say, oh, I'm a Negro poet. On the other hand, Hughes had an almost opposite view of that. He said, oh, well, everything I'm writing is coming out of my racial consciousness. And everything I'm doing is coming out of the cultural stuff of my people. So I'm going to do jazz poetry, and I'm going to do blues poetry, and I'm going to use these forms that Black people are creating. I'm going to make poetry out of them. And to Colin, that, <laughs> that sounded ridiculous. Colin said, like, oh, wait a minute, wait, you can't do that. That was like saying, oh, I'm going to play tennis without a net. 
So the men had clearly very different perspectives about this. But the idea of someone clearly announcing, I am a black writer, became something that I think black audiences preferred. Yeah, all of that comes to the fore in this poem with those last two remarkable, very quotable lines. Yet do I marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. And this whole question of, well, how to sing. These are questions that come to the fore in this poem, which is the first poem in this collection that you've put together. And I think kind of nicely opens up all of these struggles that are going on. And there's, of course, one other big struggle and big aspect to Colin's identity that's a part of this poem, which is, I mean, he was fostered by this Christian minister, this Methodist minister. He was Christian himself, though he struggled with it. A lot of that comes through in in a lot of his poetry. And so we have this beginning, I doubt not God is good, well-meaning kind. Mm -hmm. And and we start with this sort of classic problem of pain. Well, if he is good and well-meaning and kind, what's the deal with all this stuff? So can you say something about the role of Christianity, especially his sense of the kind of particular ambiguities that were associated with being a black Christian in the 1920s. Yeah, Colin had a deep Christian consciousness, partly because of his adoptive father. And a lot of his poems have a lot to do with Christianity and this kind of struggle that he's having here. It's a kind of standard struggle about how is God good if if bad stuff is happening in the world? How is God good? Mm -hmm. And that's something that he has looked at in several of his poems. He struggles with Christianity in part because he felt that he had this very strong, what he called pagan or hedonistic streak in him and stuff like that, that he felt that it was in conflict with his Christian orientation. Part of this was probably because he was homosexual. So I think this was a struggle with him, or at least being bisexual. He's married twice in his life. So, I mean, he sets it up in this way about God being good, well-meaning, and kind, and yet you have the kind of world that you have. It's interesting that the two examples he gave are examples from Greek mythology, Tantalus and and Sisyphus. It's pretty clear if you read the myths why why Tantalus and and Sisyphus are, are, they're being punished for one thing, and it's pretty clear why they're being punished if you read the stories. It was not uncommon at all for many white people and for some black people too, to think that being black was some form of punishment. Many black people believe, let's say back in the 19th century, even into the early 20th century, that being black was some kind of trial that God was putting black people through. Maybe like a trial like Tantalus is going through or Sisyphus or something like that. Of course, the real problem is, uh, the real issue is to make a poet black and bid him sing. So it's not just being black, but it's being a poet. And for somebody who is saying, as he says constantly, and as I quoted, I believe, a couple of times in the introduction, oh, I'm not a Negro poet. I'm just a poet. And here he is saying in this thing, to make a poet black and bid him sing. So being a black poet is a distinct thing. And is, is it some kind of contradiction? What is, you know, is it some form of punishment? Is it some kind of trial? Why is it particularly strange that God would make a poet black and bid him sing? I mean, it's fine to be black if I wasn't going to be put, <laughs> if I wasn't <laughs> being put in this particular position. So, I mean, it's, it's broaching a lot of interesting questions. The fact that he decided to frame this whole issue about his race in a larger kind of theological way in relation to his religion. I mean, instead of wanting to frame it, which he could have, in a purely political way, 
I thought was interesting, but I assume that's partly because of his of his upbringing and because Christianity is, if you read his corpus of all of his poetry, Christianity is something that's extremely important to him. You know, as I hear you talking about this poem, which is so rich and so complex. I love those final two lines, and as you have observed, people have quoted them for generations. But part of what maybe makes them so memorable is because, in the broader context of the poem, this is a poem that does not resolve what it's grappling with. This is a really serious struggle for this poetic speaker, and he can't find a way to resolve this conflict. Right. So, and even in the first line of the poem, which I love so much, <laughs> there's some wit to it. Right.、Yes. You can infer that someone is saying to this poetic speaker, "God is great." Right. So,、uh, <laughs> this, you know, someone is trying to convince County Cullen, "No, no, God is definitely great." And <laughs> instead of saying, "I am convinced God is good," he's like, "I doubt not. God is good." <laughs> Well-meaning. Well, people are well-meaning, but usually when we say that they're well-meaning, they're often doing something really lousy. <laughs> you know. So he, for the idea that God could be good and well-meaning, and if he took the time to talk to us, he could explain why he's made us and animals and these mythological figures the way he has. But he doesn't stoop to speak to us,、right. and so we can't know. Yes.、Yeah. And your point is well taken. I mean, there, I mean, who knows how much irony there is in that first line of the poem? As I said, his grappling with his religion was not ultimately that he resolved things. And I think your point is well taken that the poem does not resolve insofar as, as the speaker's dilemma goes. It's not resolved. It's a mystery, and God won't speak to us, so He won't tell you. So yeah, I I and it's not unusual in 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 several of his poet poems when he's talking about Christianity that there is a kind of aura tint of irony in in what he's saying. It's certainly about the nature of his relationship or the nature of human the relation of human beings to God and the inscrutable nature of this being that created you and kind of shuts you off from any kind of understanding of. What he is, or what it is, and his ways are inscrutable. His ways are and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand what awful brain compels his awful hand. Well, there's great distance between God and people, and you know, <laughs> in case you didn't know that, but what he feels about that is unclear about what he feels about that distance.、Mm-hmm. But there is coming through in the poem a certain sense of alienation. Of God and people in some way, because God won't speak. Now, that's an interesting thing to talk about or think about for Black Christian, particularly coming out of the tradition he did, to talk about this certain kind of alienation from God or something. Because in the Black Church and Black Church he was raised in, was one of the things that's really emphasized is, oh, you know, I have this really deep personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's sort of saying,、mm, that's kind of tough to have with a. <laughs> <laughs> With a with a being that is like you can't comprehend it, and you know your mind doesn't. He, the being doesn't communicate with you, and your mind can't seem to comprehend what it is. And、mm-hmm. it's kind of tough to have a personal relationship with that. And of course, here in this poem as well, as a Christian, I mean, one of the absences in this poem is Jesus, who is supposed to be that figure that is supposed to mediate between God and man. 
but yet there is no mediation here at all in this poem, mm. uh, which is kind of interesting. One of the things I see going on here in terms of that invocation of Christian theology and theodicy and so on, he's, he's really invoking a lot of big traditions that he's then inserting himself into at the very end. So the mm-hmm. Christian theology and theodicy is one. Greek mythology with Tantalus yes. and Sisyphus is another. The whole English sonnet tradition, of course, this wow. is a sonnet in and of itself. And so in a way, he's drawing on all of these big Western traditions and then turning in the last couplet to saying, and here I am, a black poet, and you're bidding me sing. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And certainly that was something that was on Cullen's mind all the time about inserting himself in these very, and being and trying in some way to be able to claim those traditions as his own. Now that you mentioned, I remember a kid in the class, when I taught this poem many years ago, a black kid said, said something like that about the problem that black people have. One of the problems you have as a black artist is that you're hooked up to a set of traditions that don't lead you to where you want to go exactly, but there are a set of traditions that you have because you don't have any others. Mm. <laughs> it's either this or you, it's what James Baldwin once said. I have to figure out, Baldwin once said, I have to figure out my way in this scheme, what, what he meant was America and, mm. and the Western world. I have to figure out my place in this scheme because if I don't, I don't have any other scheme. This mm. is the scheme. Well, the links to Tantalus and Sisyphus are interesting in that respect, too. I mean, uh, Joanne and I were talking before, and Joanne mentioned that with Tantalus, he, he's always reaching for the prize and never getting it. And right. with Sisyphus, it's it's a sort of endless task, endless labor that has to always start over again. And right. so there's, there seems to be a reason why these are the two particular myths that he's drawing on to talk about black poets singing in America, right? Tantalus, you're never going to be given the prize. Sisyphus, it's right. going to be an endless task. How long do we have to keep doing this? Exactly. Right. I'm never going to get the prize. I'm always just going to be tantalized by it. And the water will always recede when I try to drink. The fruit will always rise up when I try to reach it. So, yeah, and I would say that that, those two myths would probably capture, in some ways, a, a certain kind of attitude about Black people's relationship with the West and with America and with the whole set of European traditions that they have, and yet in some ways that they don't have, that they're trying to claim, and in, in some ways, people are saying you can't claim it. Then you're saying, if I can't claim this, I there's nothing else I can claim, and this is because this is the only thing I know. The longer I listen, the more I, I really start to see that the sonnet form was a perfect structure for him to inhabit, not just for all the reasons that you've described, but also because formal poetry is so good because in some ways it kind of cools down what might be some really hot emotions because it it creates like a measured rhetorical sort of cadence for it, right? Mm -hmm. But the more I listen, the more I sense that there are some very hot emotions here and that each of these examples provides an illustration for, as you've been discussing, the difficult labor, the never-ending struggle. And when I look at how he links that first line with the last two, the poem is full of concessions. He's willing to concede so much. And yet he says, I, I don't doubt that God is good. He's well-meaning. He's kind. And yet I have to, I just have to marvel at this curious thing. I'm interested in those words, marvel and curious. He's not saying that he's grappling with this difficult thing. He's marveling at this curious, that distance that you talked about earlier. It's almost like he's keeping his distance because 
to confront the truth of it is so hard, right? And then he ends with, to make a poet black and bid him sing exclamation point. I've always lingered on that exclamation point because I wonder why he chose that. And I think it's partly because it's almost like a gesture of disbelief at the situation of, of how difficult it is to rise to this task. I do think that the form permits him to express himself very passionately in some respects, but also permits him a certain kind of detachment. And I think he's trying to seek that balance. And I think he tried to seek this kind of balance in some of the other stuff that he wrote. Okay, I have this passion and this great sense of a kind of cosmic injustice or a great sense of just puzzlement about our current situation or whatever, the races or whatever. But also by doing it in, in the sonnet form, he could harness it and discipline it and in this way exhibit a certain kind of detachment from it yeah. in creating yeah. this kind of voice that he wanted to create. There is a certain kind of real sense of mastery I think he wants to convey here. But I also think he also wants to convey a certain kind of opening this sort of thing up to particularly to his black audience. One of the things I think he wants to try to do here is to show that all oh, these kind of forms are not alien to you. They can do the work, the creative work that you need for them to do. Well, and some of the creative work done is the ways that a sonnet tradition has so many inherited rules. And then when you mess with those rules, you sort of layer meanings into the poem. At a different episode of this podcast, we looked at Claude McKay's famous sonnet, America, and how he twists oh, yeah. the rhymes with, within the scheme to show himself sort of twisting within this concept of America. And here with, with this sonnet, so we have three sentences which set up a different places where turns might happen. He's got a clear eight, six divide, which is very traditional to a sonnet, eight lines and then six lines by the rhyme schemes. The six lines are two couplets each, so that's a little unusual. But what that enables him to do is then he's got a long sentence to begin with that's eight lines long. You might expect a turn there, but instead he gets a kind of amplification there to a general principle that God's ways are inscrutable. And that he's just got this awful brain compelling this awful hand, and, and we're just never going to get to the bottom of it. And then that allows for this turn in the last couple lines, except it's not exactly a turn. It's yet a further amplification. Yeah. So if a sonnet has a traditional turn to it, the way I read this poem is that all it has is amplifications of the point. But the other thing I noticed about that last line is that we talked about the the three sort of longstanding traditions that are invoked here, Christianity and theology, Greek mythology, sonnet tradition. But then... At least what I hear echoes of in that last line is a classic African-American spiritual by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. And that goes on and says, and the wicked carried us away in captivity, required from us a song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, pulling from the Psalms. But that's that's an old classic spiritual. So in some ways, I feel him invoking a spiritual even in the midst of an English sonnet. Yeah, that's perfectly reasonable because his background and so forth, you know, he's very schooled in black religious music and the like. And he makes references to black religious music and some of some of his other poetry. So in the black poetic tradition, the first black poets were considered the people who created the spirituals. With all that said, would you be willing to read this poem again? Sure, why not? Yet do I marvel. I doubt not God is good, well-meaning, kind, and did he stoop to quibble could tell why the little buried 
mole continues blind, why flesh that mirrors him must someday die. Make plain the reason tortured Tantalus is baited by the fickle fruit. Declare if merely brute caprice doomed Sisyphus to struggle up a never-ending stair. Inscrutable his ways are and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand what awful brain compels his awful hand. Yet do I marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. Thank you, Gerald. For more information about County Cohen, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gerald. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>